Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you're familiar with the well-known sonnet penned by the 19th century poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. He heard about a traveler who had seen the ruins of of a mighty statue in the Middle East, and he wrote the following sonnet. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias. King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What a very appropriate image for the kingdom of man. This Ozymandias, whoever he was, thought he was quite the guy, had this great big statue, this plaque saying, look at all of my great works. And just some centuries later, it's broken down, buried in the sand, the statue, and the great works are nowhere to be seen. That's the description of the kingdom of man. There are two kingdoms, and as we read through the scriptures, we see that clash, that cosmic clash between those two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his Christ, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom. And then there's that upstart uh, attempt to be a substitute for that kingdom. It's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of rebellion, uh, which is behind the kingdom of man. And only one of those two kingdoms endures. The one is destroyed, the other stands forever. And we know which one it is that stands forever. We confess it in the Nicene Creed. We speak about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We speak of Christ whose kingdom shall have no end. And what we see in our text this morning is just one more example of the clash of these two kingdoms. And as you read through the scriptures... You delight in the victory of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you do kind of feel sorry for the other kingdom because they never, ever win. They seem to, but they never, ever do. And that's what we see in our text this morning again. The whole earth had one language and the same words, or maybe you can, it kind of means the few words. There's a limited common vocabulary that everybody has, and it's in the same language. Now, if you ask a professional linguist about the origin of language, where did language begin? How did it start? How did the different languages come about? Well, there were lots of ideas and lots of attempts to give a solution, but really, it's impossible for the unbeliever to come to an understanding because they come from an evolutionary viewpoint. And there is no satisfactory evolutionary explanation for the origin of language because there is not one to be found 
in the evolutionary worldview. We know that language was given from the beginning. Adam was created, Eve was created to be able to speak, to be able to name things immediately. And at Babel, several languages were created immediately by God. Scientists today simply can't figure that out from history. We have to go by what God reveals. So this is not myth here in chapter 11. From chapter 1 right through, the Bible is presenting to us history, God's history, the history of the world, and our family history. These people mentioned here, uh, Terah and Abraham and, and Shem, these are our family. We're part of that glorious family of God, which comes from the very beginning and goes right through to the very end of time and revelation. There's one language and the same words. And we go to verse 2, as the people migrated from the east. Now, if you have an NIV, you might notice that it says, as they migrated to the east. And if you look in some other versions, it might say they migrated or they were moving in the east. Because the Hebrew behind our verse 2 allows for all of those possibilities. And so, just to say a few words about translations for a moment, it is very helpful to use different translations as you study the scriptures, because it is difficult to translate one language into another. It's difficult to capture all the nuances and all the, the fields of meaning. So when you read a bunch of different translations, you get a better picture of what the original is, is saying. We should avoid the idea that there is only one good, faithful, godly translation and that all the rest are very bad. It's simply not the case. There are many, many good translations, and every translation has its strengths and its weaknesses, and it's good to use several at the same time in your studies. And so if we look at what we have here in verse 2, and if you look at chapter 13, verse 11... Uh, then you see in, in the Hebrews exactly the same word used. In Hebrews 13, 11, Lot and Abraham are in Bethel, and Lot looks towards the Jordan Valley, which is in the east, and he decides that he's going to go to the Jordan Valley. He's going to go to that fertile area. So he goes east. He goes to the east, not from the east, not in the east. He goes to the east. It's exactly the same word we have here in verse 2. So even though our translation says migrated from I would suggest that we understand it more going in the direction of the east. And there's another reason for that. Because when Genesis mentions east, Genesis is saying something. East means going away from God. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they are expelled to the east. They live east of Eden. When Cain is sent away in exile, he goes east. And whenever you encounter the word east in Genesis, then usually it is conveying the idea of turning your back on God. And as I've mentioned in other sermons, the temple and the tabernacle were so oriented that the doorway was facing east so that when you were coming more and closer and closer to the presence of God and the Holy of Holies, you were turning your back on the east and you were going west. So there were migrating to the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. This is in the area of Babylon. Babel is the Hebrew word. Babylon is the Greek name. Babel, Babylon, same thing. 
And this is in modern-day southern Iraq by the River Tigris and the River Euphrates there in that area. And that's where they settle. And then they say in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now, why would you want to burn bricks? Well, what they're doing is, is they're, that's the way they constructed things in that area. Uh, and they t- would take mud, they would mud bricks, and they would either sun-dry them, or if they wanted them to be very strong, they would put them in a kiln and fire them. So they were very strong uh, kiln-fired bricks. That's just the way they, they, they built in that area. And, and still today, you can, you can see ruins of massive structures in that area built with mud bricks that have been sun-baked or kiln-fired. Now, the reason the, the Holy Scripture mentions that they're using bricks, burned bricks, is because in Palestine, where God's people lived, there was lots of stone. The temple was built with big stones. And so there's an explanation because this is written for God's people and there's an explanation of a different method of building in another place that they're not familiar with necessarily. And so they're, they're using uh, bitumen for mortar. This is kind of like an asphalt, a, a pitch, which is very sticky and typical in the region. Now, what's going on here? What are they doing? What, what is happening? This this may seem like a very nice thing. There, there are lots of people, and they say, come, let us make bricks. Let's do a cooperative thing here. Let's help one another, and let's build something together. Who can be against cooperation and sharing and everybody helping out? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that what our mums tell us to do? But is that what's happening? No, that's not what's happening. What, what is happening is happening at Babel. And Babel, we know from chapter 10, verse uh, verses, um, verse 10 is a city that was established by Nimrod. And we know who Nimrod was. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was one of the first tyrants, one of the first men to build his own kingdom, to take other people and put them under his command, to oppress and to raise himself up as a tyrant. So what we're looking at in this text which is before us is not a bunch of neighbors coming together to build a community garden for mutual benefit, but this is more like a massive North Korean infrastructure project where citizens lose all their individuality and all their time and energy and resources are forcefully appropriated for the common good for the state, for the tyrant. It also has religious significance because Babel, in the ancient language of that area, Akkadian, Babel means gate of God. So they're building a massive city to hold themselves all together. They're building a massive tower and they're calling it the gate of God. This is our access to heaven. So what we see here is a uniformity in disobedience a uniformity in disobedience and rebellion. Look at verse 4. They say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top, with its head in the heavens. Now, why would they do that? Look at the two reasons they give. They say, well, because we need to make a name for ourselves. You know what the Hebrew word for name is? Shem. Yeah, like the name of 
Noah's son, Shem, the name of the son that is in the holy line. God had provided a Shem. There was the line of Shem, was the holy line of the, of the woman, the seed of the woman, which would bring humanity to the Christ. But man wants to make a Shem a name for himself. That's the first reason, for man's glory. For mine be the glory. For mine be the kingdom. For mine be the power. Amen. That is the prayer of the kingdom of man. There's a second reason, not just for the glory of man, but also because of a fear of being dispersed, lest we be dispersed. Now, the word dispersed here in verse 4 is a very, very strong word. It's very negative. It means to be scattered, to be broken into pieces, to be ripped apart and tossed all over the place. What did God tell them to do? God said, fill the earth, spread out through the whole earth. I want the whole world full of life, full of men, women, and children in the image of God living to my glory, a world just buzzing with love and with life and with joy. The man says, no, no, we don't like that. We we don't want to be scattered and ripped apart and dispersed. We want to be together in our disobedience, together in our rebellion, together in seeking our glory. So they've got it all backwards. They've got it all backwards. That's what sin is. Sin is getting everything backwards. Sin is turning everything upside down. Sin is living in a parallel reality, which is no reality at all. It's a delusion. We look at chapter 12. What does God say to Abraham? To Abraham, he says, I... I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. People don't make themselves great, but God raises up one and casts down another. And how will Abraham become a great nation? How will Abraham have a great name? By going against the flow, by leaving that area where all of the powers of human glory and arrogance are concentrated, leaving it behind, because Ur the Chaldees was very close to Babel, and it was a center of power and glory in that time. And Abraham gets out of there, and he goes west, goes towards the land of Canaan, towards an area which is insignificant and not important at all. And once again, we see the way of the cross, right? It is through weakness that God works his power and his glory. Now, who's doing this? Well, the whole earth had one language, the same words, and people are are migrating to the east. And if you look at the end of chapter 10, chapter 10 ends with one part of the Shemites, one part of the descendants of Shem. And they're also in the hill country of the east, later on after the dispersion. But what's happening in chapter 11 here is that it's everybody. It's the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their descendants are all united and uniform in their rebellion and in their disobedience. You remember before the flood, what the problem was, the the sons of God, the church, God's people, they 
ended up marrying the daughters of men. They ended up intermarrying with the world and mixing with the world. So they were the sons of God, the daughters of men. But look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children, or or the the Hebrew says, the sons of man had built. There, There are no more sons of God and daughters of men. They're just the sons of men, the children of men. God's out of the picture. The sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are all together building the kingdom of man. Now that's a real concern, isn't it? We know what happened last time. We know what happened in Genesis chapter 6 when everybody turns their back on God, when the world is filled with the arrogance, the justice, and the wickedness, and the rebelliousness of sinful man. That brings destruction. Sin brings death. And so what's going to happen now? It looks like everything's heading the same way. God comes down, says verse 5. And there's something kind of amusing about that, isn't there? They were building this massive city and this tower with its top, with its head in the heavens. And then the, the writer of the scripture here, the one who recorded the scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, well, well God had to come down to have a look at it. It was so small. I, I just it. God doesn't have to come down. God can see from heaven. The Bible's making a point here. Man's greatest and most glorious projects are nothing before a holy and infinite God. The nations, says the scripture, are a drop in the bucket to God. They are like dust on the scales. We are so impressed with ourselves, aren't we, as human beings? But God, he has to come down to have a close look at our greatest and most impressive projects. Now, it's fascinating what God says in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. There is uniformity in disobedience. Man is united in his sin. They are in lockstep in rebellion. And when sinners get together, and this is at a time when you see in, in, the, in the genealogy we read of Shem, you see that the ages are kind of going down and going down and going down. So there's still that power, that principle of powerful life still from Eden, which is working in people. They're living very, very long lives. There's a lot more vitality and intelligence and strength. And the, the, the effect of sin on human beings' DNA has not corroded and corrupted things as much as it has today yet. So people are capable of great feats for good or for ill. And so they they harness the power of human intellect and creativity and imagination and strength, and they can do amazing things. But amazing things to their own destruction, to their own hurt. So God is graciously intervening here. He's saying, I'm going to put a stop to this before they make a worse mess of things, before they hurt themselves even more. God is not worried that man can do something against him. God is not worried that man can storm the gates of heaven. What does the scripture say? 
The scripture says in Proverbs 21, 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. God's not worried about man doing something against him. God's worried that man's going to make his own mess a lot worse. It's just like Adam and Eve. They were sent out of the garden. Why were they sent out of the garden? Well, the Lord said, lest they eat the tree of life and live forever. Because if they had eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their sin. That's called hell. When you live forever, you exist forever in sin. That's hell. And so God graciously intervened, lest they made things even worse. And that's what he's doing here in our text as well. He's making sure that rebellious and fallen human race cannot hurt itself even more. He puts a limit to it. So there's this, there's this graciousness, there's this blessing in the curse of confusion that he puts upon them. And so he says in verse 7, come, let us. And again, it's a little bit, uh, in a way, making light of what paltry and pathetic and puny little man has done in verse 4. He says, come, let us build ourselves a city with its top in the heavens. And the Lord says, come, let us go down. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit goes down to confuse their language so that they may not understand one each other's, one another's speech. So this is a, a blessed curse, a blessed confusion. The confusion of language means that humanity cannot insist on uniformity, on everyone living and marching and working in lockstep in slavery to the, to the high project of rebellion against God. They're scattered. They're dispersed. And so God, verse 8, dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That was the whole point, wasn't it? That's what they were supposed to do in the first place. So this is a a blessed curse. God obliges them to obey. He obliges them to fulfill his purpose, not theirs. What does Isaiah say in 45, 18 of Isaiah? Did not, or God did not create the earth to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. God didn't make this world to be empty. He made this world to be just buzzing to be just filled with human life and human joy and human creativity and relationships and productivity for his glory. And so God uses the confusion of languages where different people now are speaking different languages. They can't understand each other, so they find other people they can understand, and off they go, each one in his own way. And they left off building the city. The project is abandoned. And just like the statue of Ozymandias, so the Tower of Babel, the ruins are covered by the sands of time. Now, some archaeologists sometimes say, well, we've found the, the ruins of the Tower of Babel here or there, and it may or it may not be, uh, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that this project is abandoned. It's meaningless. It came to nothing. So the scripture says, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language 
of all the earth. In, in Hebrew, Babel means confusion. And so the Hebrew commentator, once again, is gently mocking rebellious, sinful man. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. And Babel in the ancient language, like I said, means gate of God. But the, the Holy Spirit reminds us that in Hebrew it means confusion. That's the name that they made for themselves, confusion. And so, once again, it's repeated from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this is, this is an explanation in chapter 11 of what is described back in chapter 10. Chapter 10 already describes the world with different nation groups, different people groups, different language groups in different areas of the world. And chapter 11 explains how that happened. It didn't happen because people were being obedient. It happened because people were being disobedient and God obliged them to do his will. Turn to Acts 17, 26 for a moment, and you'll see that this is all part of the eternal will and the decrees of God. Acts 17, 26, Paul is speaking in Athens, in the Areopagus, and in Acts 17, 26, Paul says this about God, and he made from one man, well, that's Adam in the first place, and then later on Noah, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So the different nations, the different people groups, the different ethnicities, the different languages in the different areas is all by the decree of God, the will of God. And so what we see, what God has made then, is this, this glorious unity of the human race from one man. And that glorious unity is displayed in a glorious diversity of nations and ethnicities and colors and customs and language. It's a glorious thing which reflects the very character of God. You see, uniformity in disobedience. Everybody thinks the same, acts the same, looks the same, does the same. That's the DNA of the kingdom of darkness, the DNA of the, of the kingdom of man. But the DNA of the kingdom of God reflects who he is. Who is God? He is God, one God, three in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a glorious, eternal unity in diversity and diversity in unity. And his character reflects in his creation and in his kingdom. So what just happened here in chapter 11, verses 1 through to 9? Well, we have a blessed confusion, don't we? God obliges the different nations to spread out throughout the world because God is doing his work. He is gathering and defending and preserving his church. That's the whole point of history. The whole point of the history of this world is not the project of man and his cities and his towers and, and his glories. The whole history of this world has to do with the project of God and his son to gather, defend, and preserve a church chosen unto everlasting life. That's the key focus in all of history. So we read the, the fifth Toledot, right? 
from verse 10 to verse 26. And at the end of chapter 10, the Shemites are mentioned, the sons of Shem, but it's, it's only half of them, the half that are on the wrong side, the half that get together with the world, the half that help with the, the building of the Tower of Babel, the half that turn their back on God. But in chapter 11, verse 10 to 26, the camera focuses in once again on that holy line of the woman, the line of the Messiah. From generation to generation, those who believe in and serve God. And so what we learn from that is that it's not enough to just be a physical descendant of the line of the woman. That's not enough. Just to be a Shemite was not enough. You need to be one who has faith and who lives in obedience. And so now, after 11 chapters of a very, very big picture, a global look at the the world, the universe, and the creation, and humanity, now the camera zooms very, very, very close and will now follow just one man, Abram from whom God will make one nation, the people of Israel, that the camera will stay focused on. This focus on Terah and his sons is because, look at verse uh, 26 there, because from Abraham, from Abram, Nahor, and Haran, from those three will be born the key principal foundational figures for the people of Israel the nation of Israel. From these, the, the covenant people of God will emerge, a people set apart to be different, to go against the flow, to swim against the current of the surrounding cultures, to think and to speak and to act differently, a people holy to the Lord, separate, different. In a world of uniformity in disobedience, this little people, starting with Abram, this little people will be a little pocket of unity in diversity, a little pocket of people reflecting the character of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see that when they get to the land of Canaan. They're different than all the other nations. They don't have a king. They have different tribes, each in its own region with its own characteristics, its own peculiarities, its own key skills. It's a society not all pressed into the same mold, living in dependence upon the state. And everybody pressed into service for the great state project of glory for the king. They didn't have a king. People of God are organized differently. They're organized with each family sitting under their own fig tree. Husbands and wives and children rejoicing in each other and enjoying the fruit of their own labor, not living on government handouts from the king or government rations. And there is a center of unity in the people of God. It's the temple, where God was present in the cloud of the presence, not because man went up to heaven, but because God descended in the Shekinah glory to dwell in the midst of his people. So that, that's what's going to happen from now on as we go into chapter 12 and onwards. God's going to describe that work of building that little greenhouse that little protected pocket to keep alive the flame of the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, 
the holy line of the woman until the birth of the Christ. And so we may think as we read chapter 11, 1 to 9, it's just a nice story from the mists of the past, which, by the way, uh, besides the flood story, this Tower of Babel story also is echoed in many ancient stories from peoples all around the world. It is definitely an experience that all of humanity has been through, and it's reflected in the ancient records of many people on many continents. But it's not just an interesting story. It's our story. It's our family history. And God used this occurrence and this event to move forward with his plan and his kingdom and with the coming of our Lord Jesus. And finally, when Jesus was born, God did come down again. Not to confuse, but to die, to pay for sin. And he came to a world which is not very different than the world of Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 10. He came to a world full of human kingdoms, of overweening pride and arrogance. And he came to open up a new and living way back to the Father, back to God. You remember later on in Genesis, Jacob dreams in Bethel about a, a ladder. Chapter 28, there's this ladder, and angels are going up and down. And then in John chapter 1 in the New Testament, the, that ladder is said to describe the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's not when man builds his towers to get to the gate of heaven, but it is when God and Christ comes to us and opens up a new and living way, a connection with the Father. And here in chapter 11, people build this huge project to kind of keep themselves all united and together. But we know what really hold things together, right? What does the Bible say? In him, all things hold together. What holds us together is not our kingdom. It's not our work. It's Christ's kingdom and his work. The point of history is not our city building. It is his city building. That's what Jesus is busy with. He's preparing the new Jerusalem, which will on that last day come down from heaven prepared as a bride for her husband, all built, all done, infinitely perfect and complete and glorious. The work of God, not the work of man. I want to end the sermon with a few applications, three applications, under, the, under three words, starting with I. So we're going to look at the kingdom of man and the spirit of Babel, which is still alive today. It's still around us, in our society, in our world. And I want to apply this text in the following way. We ought not to be integrated with the spirit of Babel. This spirit of Babel ought not to be imitated. And finally, we ought not to be intimidated. So integrated, imitated, intimidated. That's what we'll end with here. So let's look at integrated first of all. The kingdom of man seeks uniformity in disobedience. In the kingdom of man, for instance, the state is God. The tyrant calls the shots. And we're looking, brothers and sisters, in a world with this pandemic, which is a statist dream, where people are depending on the government to pay their salaries and their wages and to keep their businesses running. Where government is our God, it, is, it has to help us. It allocates resources, it decides priorities. 
And there are increasing calls in our Western world for socialism and for communism, for the project of man getting together and all working together where we all fall into line and we all help build the new world order. One way of thinking, one way of doing, one way of living. And it's all plastered with that wonderful word diversity, which is the biggest joke because it's anything but diverse. That's part of the the kingdom of man, which is building itself up also in our days. The spirit of Babel is still alive and well in our time. You can see it, that uniformity in disobedience. You see it in the language. They've taken, they've taken control of the language. That's, that's another battlefield, the language. There's this great linguistic absurdity which has been perpetrated upon society where we call uniformity and sameness diversity. You think, for instance, of the, the homosexual movement, which is not only to be tolerated anymore, but it must be celebrated and delighted in by all. And of course, the word homo means same. Homosexual marriage is same-sex marriage. No diversity there. The way God made marriage, man and woman, that's diversity. But you see how the spirit of Babel also rebels in the area of language, calling sameness and uniformity diversity. We see it in the ongoing sexual revolution, where all distinctions are erased, the creational distinctions that God made where there is non-binary and gender fluid, and there is uniformity of opinion demanded. We must reject all of us. We must reject God's way, God's distinctions, God's creational norms. We will author ourselves. We will be our own creators. We will decide our own identity, what we are, who we are, what we do. We will shrug off the roles that God made for us, and we will create a new world where everybody is so diverse that they're all indistinguishable and the same. Well, there's the unity in, or the uniformity in disobedience and rebellion. There's also the very Babel-like refusal to fill the earth. What does our modern culture teach us? It teaches us that we are parasites, that human beings are a cancer on the face of the planet. That nature is groaning because of people. That we are the problem. That we ought to leave nature alone. We ought to crowd into our cities, reduce our footprint, make ourselves sterile, minimize the population growth. The dream of the movers and shakers of the Babel movement of our time is that many, many would not be born, which is why we kill our young. And that many, many would die as soon as possible, which is why we're starting to kill our old our vulnerable, our sick, and our mentally challenged and disabled. And so, just like here in Genesis chapter 11, there's the spirit of Babel in our times. Do not fill the earth. The dream is to have an earth which is void of these parasites called humans. And you know, that's being taught. It's being preached 
The gospel of Babel is being preached in the schools and the books and the TV series, the movies, the social media, the, the legacy media, the politicians, the celebrities, and our kids and our grandkids are growing up saturated in this worldview way more than we think. We start to believe the delusion. We start to be like that one side of the, the family of Shem, which just starts working along and building this great project of rebellious and sinful man, swallowing all the lies. Well, brothers and sisters, it's not true. It's all fake. It's all a delusion. It's all lies. And that's what you could expect from anything that comes from the devil. You can take all 7 billion people on this planet and you can put them in the state of Texas, all of them, with three meters of social distancing between every man, woman, and child. And they're telling us that there are too many people in the world. The whole population of the earth can stand in the state of Texas and observe more than the minimum social distancing. Brothers and sisters, as God's people, this morning again, the Holy Spirit calls on us and instructs us to say no to the kingdom spirit of Babel. We are men, women, and children who belong in and who work for the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom of truth, not of lies. It is a kingdom of life, not of death. It is a kingdom which delights in children and family and growth. And more people, the more people, the better. Because the more people there are, the more men, women, and children created in the image of God, the more praise, the more glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Every time a baby is born, there's another infinity and eternity of worship which comes into being. Our little sister Aubrey just baptized recently. When she was born, then came into existence another infinity, another eternity of glory and worship to the Creator. And every baby represents that. And that's why we, brothers and sisters, have to get rid of the poison. The poison which is seeping into our minds, our hearts, and our souls, into the minds, hearts, and souls of our children. We must stand against the spirit of the kingdom of Babel. We must not be integrated with it. And it's not enough just to have our own schools or our own homeschooling, but just pump the same foul untruth into our children. We've got to stand, not just physically apart, but also intellectually and mentally and culturally apart from this kingdom of rebellion. That's the first thing. We ought not to be integrated. The second thing is we ought not to be imitating it. It's something that's not to be imitated. Now, are we seeking uniformity or are we seeking unity in the church? The spirit of Babel can crawl into the church too. It's like this gross, icky fluid which kind of seeps in through any crack, through any opening. And often we end up kind of taking over the thought of the kingdom of Babel. We all have to march lockstep. If we're all good reformed Christians, we have to look the same and do the same and dress the same and bring up our kids the same and 
have holidays in the same way and make decisions in the same way. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not the way that things are in the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes some people get together and they start a little evangelism project and they're all excited and then a few months later they're all down and depressed. And you say, well, what's the problem? Say, well, why isn't the whole church here? Why just a few people doing this? What about all the other people? Brothers and sisters, that's the spirit of Babel. We want everybody to do the same thing. We want the uniformity. That's not how the body of Christ works. There is a diversity of gifts which the Holy Spirit pours upon the church. Some people are great at praying. Some people are great at going out and knocking on doors. Some people are great at doing mission trips. It's okay. We don't all have to think the same. We don't all have to do the same. That's not how it works in the kingdom of Christ in the body of Christ. What we're doing does not derive its meaning and significance from the fact that we're all locked in, we're all committed, we're all engaged, and everybody's doing it. But what we're doing derives its significance from the fact that it is from God, for God, and unto God's glory, and in the power of God. There's another question that we can ask ourselves about the spirit of Babel. You know, they didn't want to go spread out, right? Are we in danger of falling into that sin? What did God tell us to do? Thursday is Ascension Day. The Lord Jesus went up to heaven. Before he went up to heaven, what did he say? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and preach the gospel to all the nations and bring men, women, and children into the church as my disciples. Baptize them, teach them to observe what I have commanded you. God told us to spread out. God told us to get the message out. God told us that every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group needs to hear the gospel. But brothers and sisters, sometimes it's just so much more efficient if we all clump together, right? And we can build big buildings and big institutions and we all live very close together where we don't have to drive too far. It's so much more efficient. Well, that's okay. If we've got lots of kids at school and we want to live close to the school, that's, that's not, nothing wrong with that. But as a community, we've got to be very careful that we don't do that at the expense of obedience to God's command. Going, make disciples of all the nations. Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess. We must teach all men, women, and children to observe everything that he has commanded. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that there are so many cities in Canada where there is no preaching of the gospel of grace. And why is it that reformed people tend to kind of cluster together in certain areas? What about Morinville or Spruce Grove or Fort Saskatchewan or downtown Edmonton? Do they have churches which preach sovereign grace and which practice biblical and reformed worship? Do they? I don't know. If they don't, what are we doing about it? Does it weigh on our hearts? Are we thinking about it? Are we planning for it? See, the Tower of Babel teaches us, not just that the world's in a bad way, and that the world lives in rebellion, but the Tower of Babel teaches us that we can lose focus too as God's people. We can get so caught up in building our kingdom, our efficiencies, that we can lose focus of the imperative, of the advance of the kingdom of Christ. And we can do that in our own lives as we plan our lives as individuals and couples and families, as congregation, as federation. We can be so focused on what we need for our efficiencies and our comfort that we forget that we're part of something bigger. 
and that we have a call from God. So we ought not to be integrated with the spirit of Babel. The spirit of Babel ought not to be imitated. And finally, we ought not to be intimidated by this spirit because it is intimidating, or it can be. It tries to be. It's powerful, right? It reaches to the heavens. It's so high and mighty, the power of man, the power of sinful man, the power of the culture. They got all the, they got the media. They got all the resources. They can make Christians on social media look like driveling fools. They mock. They call us bigots and other names. And then we can sometimes wonder, you know, where does this leave us? They're so powerful. They've got so many resources. But brothers and sisters, we need to have God's perspective. Remember what God says? The nations are dropping the bucket. The nations are like dust on the scale. You know, they tried to build a tower with its head in the heaven. They didn't even get close. But we are the body of Christ, and our head is in heaven. Thursday's Ascension Day. Jesus went up. And he, he sits at the right hand of God on the throne of the universe. That's our Lord Jesus. That's our brother. That's our Savior. He runs things. He's in charge. His eternal decrees, he is implementing and executing. And we are part of that glorious project. We are part of building his kingdom, not man's kingdom. We're part of building his kingdom, not our kingdom. Our prayer is this, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So we can look at man, we can look at the kingdom of man, and we can go, wow, that's pretty amazing. It's a little bit intimidating. But then we look at the Lord, and we look at his works, and we look at his kingdom, and then we say the words of Psalm 36, stanza 2, which we're going to sing shortly. We say, Lord, your faithfulness and love reach to the heights of heaven above. There's nothing more sublime. There's nothing more glorious. There's nothing more powerful than God and the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And in the end, the men of pride and their works are broken and fallen and failed and overthrown and defeated and covered by the sands of time. Just like the statue and the works of Ozymandias. But the kingdom and the works of the Lord stand forever. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is that stone carved out without human hands which comes from the mountain which rolls and gets larger and larger which smashes into pieces all the kingdoms of this world and then grows and grows and grows until it becomes a mountain which fills the earth that's the project that you're a part of that's the project that you belong to and that is the project which will stand now and forever we get to be part of Christ's amazing kingdom building project which will grow and grow and grow more glorious into all eternity. Not going to stop. It's not going to stop. We're not going to reach a spot where it kind of stays the same. It's going to keep growing in glory forever. So, all glory to God, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's sing.